on the previous episode of Real Life Royal Equity. And, and I left uh, Chile when I was about two years old, and uh, we, we went to England. Then we moved down to Belize for a couple years, moved back to the States, lived in Arizona and Scottsdale for a year, and then I did my undergrad work up in, at UC Berkeley. But it wasn't something that I wanted to do, and, and that was key. All right, all right. It's Real Life, Real Equity with your hosts, Justin and Keisha Brooks. Welcome to the show. Our goal is to share with you real life examples of entrepreneurs showing in both life and business. As real estate investors, our mission is to model, educate, and inspire you to act by sharing easy to implement tools, ideas, and information to add more worth to your net worth, more cash to your cash flow, helping you achieve your goals in less time. Welcome to the show. All right, welcome back to the show. Super excited for our guest today. This is going to be part two of our interview with Mauricio Raul. Today, we're going to bring Mauricio back in talking about raising money and investing in real estate. There's a new book out called The Trillion Dollar Coach. And if you have not read this book, I highly recommend it. The Trillion Dollar Coach. It was a guy who coached the founders of a trillion dollars worth of business, the starters of Google, the starters of a lot of different big tech startups in Silicon Valley. And so coaches are vital. I want to switch gears now to the syndication side of things. And we're using a really big word and I'm going to have Mauricio really talk to us about what that word really means. We want to bring you real value. So talk to us a little about the syndication security side of real estate investing. Yeah, and more important, let's do it without boring people to death, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so a syndication, for those of you who don't know, uh, it's not a syndicated radio show, or syndic- it's not Seinfeld where you, you have a syndicated <laughs> TV show. So a syndication is simply the pooling of resources. And most people think of that as cash, but it's actually a lot of different things, and I'll talk about that in a second. But it's the pooling of resources for you then to go take those resources and do something with it. But that's really what a syndication is, the pooling of resources so you get to do something. Now, in our world, we're pooling capital. In my world, when I say my world, it's sort of the real estate syndication world where people are pooling capital, pooling other people's money in order to then take that money and buy a bigger apartment complex or some kind of real estate that otherwise they either wouldn't be able to take down on their own because it's too large or they just prefer to use some leverage and use other people's money. So that's what a syndication is. And in terms of resources, it, it doesn't have to be money. Money is just one of many resources or one, one type of capital. You know, you could use other people's credit. You could use your relationships. You can use your education. You can use your time. All those are resources that you can pool together. You know, a lot of people, when they start, you know, let me give you a great example. A lot of doctors, what do they have? They have a lot of cash but they don't have a lot of time and they don't have a lot of knowledge and they couldn't be bothered to go spend a weekend at a seminar because they're you know working all week and want to spend some time with the family. So you can come in and provide that expertise and even maybe you have more time and you're willing to go to these seminars and learn the business and have to get that expertise. And then you can partner with someone who has the money who, who doesn't have those resources that you have. So that's something important to keep track of. Now, the reason that we use the word securities is because even though you're buying real estate, like a lot of people say, well, you know, why is securities laws involved? Why is the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission involved when I'm just buying a house? I'm just buying a piece of property. Like what's going on? And the reality is the definition of a security is very broad. And the way I like to define it sort of as a cheat sheet is anytime you are taking money 
from investors where the profits are generated by your efforts. In other words, you're actively involved and your investors are passively involved, you are dealing with the security. So again, anytime you receive money from investors where the profits are generated by your efforts, you are dealing with the security. And I don't care what the structure is. I don't care if you're setting up an entity, you know, an LLC, an LP, a corporation, whatever, or you're doing a joint venture agreement or a tenancy common agreement or a profit sharing agreement or a handshake, a high five, doesn't matter. The structure itself doesn't matter. It has to do whether essentially you, your investors are passive, they're giving you money and then going back home and sitting on the couch and waiting for you to do all the work and then give them a return. That's a security. And so that's why the securities rules are in play. And that's why you need somebody like me and an SEC attorney or like a syndication attorney to navigate those compliance, those kind of complex rules and compliances of the securities laws and make sure that you're not violating them because there are obviously some some serious consequences uh, in violating those security laws. So talk to us a little bit about the difference between that. A lot of people will say, I have a friend of mine who's done this and they gave me their, and I'm going to use a little, a little jargon, their PPM, their private placement memorandum, their offering memorandum, and I'll just take it to my attorney who said he'll do it for 250 bucks. Talk to us a little bit about the difference between a true-to-life syndication attorney and an attorney from another field, whether it be a general attorney or uh, even a real estate attorney. Talk yeah. a bit about, about that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can, and I've got some energy on that. I actually, actually wrote a really long <laughs> blog. I don't know if you saw it today, but I, I, somebody asked something similar about, hey, what did you pay for PPM or something? And I just, some people were, were, were giving some answers and I just, I just went off. It's kind of like a long thing. The difference is, you know, if you need to have surgery, for example, you're not going to go to your general practitioner and have that person do the surgery. Right, that the general practitioner is a general practitioner. They know a little bit about everything, but certainly is not an expert in surgery. And you would not trust that general practitioner, even though they're a doctor, they're a certified doctor, they may be the best doctor in the world. You're not going to trust them with performing surgery. And even further, you know, you, you obviously go to a specialist. You have stomach issues, and you go to a gastroenterologist. That's great. But even within the gastroenterology world, somebody may specialize in a particular disease, or again, they may be a surgeon. And so it's really critically important if you're thinking about doing this is that you go to the right type of attorney. A lot of, I don't say a lot, but I'd certainly come across scenarios where you have a general business attorney who's used to setting up entities, used to creating operating agreements. And they're like, yeah, I can, you know, I can put together these documents for you and, you know, charge you really inexpensively. And, and what they don't realize, and that was my rant today, they don't realize that putting together that document, that, that private placement memorandum, which is just a disclosure document, not just, it's a, it's a huge disclosure document of, of how basically all the ways your deal could go south and go wrong. Putting together that document is just one of a thousand things that you have to worry about. And I think in my rant today, I said it's about 20% of, of what's going on. There's so much going on in the compliance world and landmines that you need to avoid. And again, you don't have to memorize those. You don't have to know what those are, but you do need to be working with an attorney who knows the the area like the back of his hand and then can talk to you ask questions understand what your deal is and then make sure that that person steers you away from all these landmines right so very very good definition of the difference between just going to a regular general attorney and then talking to a attorney who specializes in securities so when we start talking about attorney work i get a lot of people who ask, well, why don't I just go on legal zoom and create entities and operating agreements? And I always say I go to an attorney and my reasoning has always been because the attorney who writes a document defends the document. Is that true? 
Yeah, for sure. If you go to any professional, again, going back to the doctor analogy, I mean, if you go to a doctor and they perform surgery or something and they botch it and it's their fault, you, you can go after the doctor for botching the surgery, right? Uh, and similarly with, with a lawyer, when a lawyer, when you represent a lawyer and you have that attorney-client relationship, the lawyer stands behind their work. And if their work, for whatever reason, wasn't up to par, wasn't up to standard, then you have recourse against the attorney. So if they created an entity for asset protection purposes or whatever, and you know they drafted things in a way that didn't protect you the way you thought it would protect you, you could go after the attorney or like say, hey, look, you know, this cost me X amount of dollars, Mr. Attorney or Mrs. Attorney, you know, I want reimbursement for that. If you end up doing it on your own and you go to LegalZoom, I don't think you're going to be able to go to LegalZoom because LegalZoom, number one, is not an attorney. They're just a filing service, essentially, and, and they even tell you, hey, we're not lawyers. Go take this to an attorney. But of course, that's all in the fine print that nobody reads and wow. nobody does it. So you end up with these template, templated documents. And in, and in some cases, that might be okay. You know, if you're just setting up an LLC and you're the only member and you don't really even need an operating agreement, you may just need one for, for opening the bank, then then maybe, maybe the legal zoom is a way to go. Although again, I would argue, I used to do this for a living as well. It's like, well, you know, where do you set up the entity? You know, who should manage the entity? Who should be the owners? All these questions that come up that legal zoom is going to tell you. And if they do, it's not certainly not legal advice or, or any advice based on, on asset protection expertise. So similar with, with, with any area of law, there's so many unknown questions and, and it's almost like you don't know what you don't know. And having an attorney in place, you know, assures you that it's getting done right. And if it isn't done right because of the attorney's fault, then you've got some recourse. Again, excellent example. Example, and I didn't actually know that you could you could get recourse from an attorney. So that was that actually was not the intent of the question, but uh, you answered it all the same. For all those audience members and the future audience members who are considering using an online service, I am a huge fan of face to face or even just human, real attorney work because the attorney who creates it is the person who has created it based off of experience. Let's talk about some of the different components of securities exemptions and the different components of raising funds. Yeah, so great question. So once you've identified that you are in fact dealing with the security as we discussed earlier, so you're now under the, you know, the securities laws jurisdiction, then I'd like to say there's three things we think about. Number one, you need to register that security with the SEC, with the Securities and Exchange Commission, or you must find an exemption to that registration, or number three, it's illegal. It's really that simple. You either (laughs) register, you find an exemption, or it's illegal. That's as simple as I can put it. Obviously, we don't want to be doing illegal offerings and you got to be careful though, because illegal offerings aren't just, you know, Bernie Madoff type stuff. I mean, obviously, if you're defrauding people and you're trying to swindle people out of the money, clearly that's an illegal offering, but it extends to other things like, you know, failure to provide a PPM, this disclosure document, whatever it's required, or, you know, maybe you're paying somebody a commission to help you raise money. There's a lot of things that you can fall under being an illegal offering that, that falls short of, of committing flat out fraud. So you've got to be careful about that. You obviously don't want to, well, not obviously, you don't want to register at least the full-blown registration because, number one, it's going to take you a year, two years to get that through the government process because, as we all know, the government is not the most efficient entity out there and you're dealing with government lawyers. And so that's going to take you one or two years and it's going to cost you six figures, mid-six figures, and I have a client where it's costing seven. So if you're a real estate investor and you're in a contract and you've got to close in 60 to 90 days, you just don't have time to go register this thing with the SEC. 
And so that leaves us with number two, which is finding an exemption, which is where I live. That's the world that I live, and, and, and that's all I deal with is, is these exemptions and trying to find the proper exemption for each client. And again, fortunately for us, there's a couple of exemptions that probably 90 to 95% of the people qualify for and rely on. And those are the infamous 506B as in boy and 506C as in Charlie. Those two exemptions are the most commonly used exemptions. And then I'd probably throw in Reg A, Reg A plus as kind of the third one. But that's not used as much as the other two because there is a little bit of a registration process. And so there's, you're kind of... There's only certain limited circumstances that I think it makes sense for you to do that. So the vast majority of people use a 506B or 506C, which is which generally fall into these uh, Reg D exemptions, which you may have heard about. Go into a little bit of depth on that, the different 506B and 506C. Yeah, let me give you the quick, the, the, the 10,000 foot overview. I mean, I, I can and have done two or three day seminars on this. So, but essentially in a 506B, which is probably the most used exemption of all between the two, the two or three that I've even referenced, uh, you can raise, the, the reason they're so popular is number one, you can raise an unlimited amount of money, right? So that's why even the big boys like the JP Morgan, the Golden Sachs, the Merrill Lynch's, they all use 506B because they can raise a billion dollars for a fund or what have you. So that's one of the nice reasons. Uh, number two, uh, you can accept a limited number of non-accredited investors. Uh, and just so that nobody falls behind, an accredited investor is anyone who has a million dollars in net worth, excluding their primary resident, uh, or earned two hundred thousand or have earned $200,000 the last couple of years with a reasonable expectation of earning that much this year. So you can take a limited amount of non-accredited investors along the sophisticated, which helps the beginner syndicate to raise money from friends and family. And, you know, inevitably, some of those don't have those income qualifications. The big limitation really from this exemption is that you are prohibited from advertising and soliciting. So you can't go on Facebook and pitch your deal or have a website or do a webinar or go on a podcast like this and say, hey, I'm raising a million bucks to go buy a building. You know, call me and, you know, I'll, I'll tell you all about it. So that's the main prohibition. Those are kind of the, 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 the top three things that the 506B kind of covers. The 506C is actually came out just recently, or maybe not recently anymore. It's been now six years, I guess, almost six years, 2013. And that lifted the prohibition against advertising. So before we only had 506B, we couldn't advertise. Now with 506C, you can advertise. So basically the same rules, but now you are allowed to advertise. So if you want to go on Facebook and pitch your deal or take an ad out in the Super Bowl or do a webinar and you know whatever you want to do, go on a podcast, you can do that. The only limitation is that you must limit your investors to accredited investors only. Okay, so no non-accredited, no people who don't have that income requirement. So accredited investors only, and you must take what's called reasonable steps to verify that status. So you can't rely on the representation that hey, I'm accredited. You've got to look, start looking at tax returns or or income statements or you know appraisals or what have you, so you can justify or prove or take reasonable steps to verify or get a CPA verification letter from the investor that says, hey, this, this guy really is accredited. But that, that kind of opens up your world a little bit because a lot of people at some point run out of friends and family and people they know. And so they, they switch over to 506C, which allows them to go advertise and do the, the Facebook thing, which, which is such a huge, not to digress too much, but the Facebook thing is such a huge deal because with a 506C, no problem. You do whatever you want on Facebook. You can put your business plan up there. You can do, do whatever you want. With a 506B, you can't. And yet I see so many people online every single day posting things on Facebook about either directly about their deals or just kind of drumming interest, what's called conditioning the market, which is also considered an offer. And so there are people day in and day out violating those social media rules without even knowing it. 
uh, or knowingly doing it and just figuring that they're not going to get caught. And so and nobody's really talking about it too much. And, and it got to the point where people were trying to do some research, couldn't really find any answers. So the people were convincing me and I finally put something together. I put together a little video series on the do's and don'ts of, of social media advertising. So if people are interested in that, they're welcome to reach out to me and, and get a copy. You know, just to go even further, let, let's talk about the new SEC accredited investor definition with the Jobs Act 3.0 proposal. Yeah, so you know, the, so that, that accredited investor definition, the million dollars excluding uh, excluding primary residence or the income, uh, the two hundred thousand dollar income thing, that's been around since the the exemption was created back in 1982, uh, I believe. Yeah, 1982. Uh, you know, back then in 1982, which is like what 37 years ago now, a million dollars was real money, right? A million dollars was a lot of money back in 1982. Uh, and they haven't raised that limit. They haven't adjusted it for inflation. So you fast forward 30 years and now the million dollars, you know, really isn't a big deal. Plus, you know, how many of you know people who are wealthy, have over a million dollars and are the dumbest people in the world who just don't know anything about financial matters, right? <laughs> and conversely, you get, you get people who are dirt poor, who, you know, barely make any money and they're super smart about financial decisions. So it's always been a question whether using income or net worth as a uh, sort of as a barrier or as a, as a what's the word I'm looking for, just a distinction between whether you can invest in something or not or, or, or to determine your level of sophistication is kind of nonsense, really. Right. And so over the years, over the years, the SEC or Congress really has been thinking about, and they're still in the thinking stage, but they've been thinking about changing that definition, uh, whether just to simply increase the number, so instead of being a million, maybe it's two million, uh, and maybe it's indexed to inflation this time, so that, that it continues to rise. Or I've seen um, the one I like the most is you can maybe take some kind of a test if you wanted to. So in, in order to become an accredited investor, maybe you take a test, and so you study for it, which to me makes the most sense because then you get the financial education, you're studying for this thing, you, you shouldn't be investing in these things anyway if you don't know what you're doing. So studying, getting knowledgeable, you should be doing it on your own anyway, and then having some kind of a test that accurately you know, measures that would, would probably be a, a smart thing. But uh, there's so many different things out there that the SEC is considering doing. And, um, and then, yeah, I posted an article on my Facebook page today, uh, which I think came out not too long ago, just kind of discussing the, the several types of things that people are thinking about doing. But again, it's in the early stages. You know, they're in committee. They're, you know, who knows how long it would take to get through and if any of this stuff would get through. But there's definitely been a lot of chatter over the years, and, and certainly after the Jobs Act and, and these new rules that came out with Title 6C, that chatter's gotten a little bit stronger, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Wow. Again, for the magnitude of this to be being considered is, is mind-blowing. I didn't know it was even being considered, but when I seen your article this morning that you posted and I read through it, it threw me back, and I immediately turned to Keisha and I said, this could be a true-to-life game changer because like you said there are a lot of rich people who are dumb and then there is a lot of yeah. not so rich people who are very very smart when it comes to money matters right right um right and i would be remiss if i did not talk to you about your level of expertise in the 1031 versus opportunity zone uh discussion and opportunity zones obviously are new um and we don't have enough time to really go into a whole lot of depth on what they are. And we don't have a lot of time to go into depth on 1031s and the differences. between <laughs> them. So we're going to give you a really high 10,000 foot version of it so that 
you all can get a little bit of a taste of it and then go to Mauricio to learn more and his video series and all the other podcast interviews that he's been doing, especially there's one that he just did recently on the real estate guys who there he really talks about opportunity zones. So talk to us a little bit about opportunity zones versus 1031 exchanges and the 10,000 foot view we can get from that. Yeah. So just so we don't leave anybody behind a 1031 exchange is simply a tax deferral strategy where you, you know, you, most people think you sell a property and then you buy another one. As long as you do it within a certain time frame, which is 180 days, then you don't pay any capital gains tax on that. Uh, and the reason for that, it's really, you're, you're not technically under the IRS code anyway. You're not technically selling something and buying something. You're simply swapping it out. You're just doing an exchange. You're exchanging one property for another. And therefore there is no capital gains as long as you're buying something of equal or greater value. And so that's probably the most powerful tax strategy, uh, tax mitigation strategy that real estate investors use. So they don't get tagged with capital gains. And these are all investment properties and people would, would use those profits to buy more property anyway. So in theory, and a lot of people do the strategies, they, they start buying single family homes and then they maybe they graduate to apartments, but they're constantly 1031 exchanging up until the end. And at the end, you're either dying and passing it on to your heir. So you actually never end up paying the tax yourself or you end up buying, you know, have a huge portfolio and at that point you stop buying and selling and you just live off the cash flow for forever. So you never, never actually get to pay the tax. The opportunity zones came about and, and that's a, another, you know, three-day seminar, but I do have another, I just did a report because a lot of my clients were calling me about opportunity zones from the syndication standpoint, but an opportunity zone is simply, there's 9,000 of them across the country, and they're basically dilapidated areas, places around the country that really are in desperate need of jobs, energy, of of capital, where, you know, I always think of Detroit, Michigan, and I apologize if anybody here is listening from Detroit, but that's kind of the image I have. Uh, Some of these areas in Detroit, I mean, I remember 10, 15 years ago, you could buy homes for like six grand and put them on your credit card. I mean, that's how bad it was. So think Detroit, Michigan, it's an opportunity zone. And so if you start investing in these zones, you are going to be getting some preferential tax treatment. And there's really two of them and two types of them, but the one that relates to the 1031 is that you can take gains, capital gains, just like in the 1031 where you take the gains from property, you can take a gain from any asset, which is really nice. So you're not limited to just property. You can sell your stocks, your bonds, your precious metals, your Ferrari, your art collection, your wine collection, certainly real estate, anything that generates a capital gain, you can then defer that tax, that capital gains tax by rolling that money into an opportunity zone. It's gotta be through a fund, but you roll it into this opportunity zone fund and uh, you get to defer it. Now, the negatives of this is that the deferral part of it, which is not the main attraction, but it's just one of the attractions, is limited. So you, unlike a 1031 where you can, you can defer the tax forever, you're only limited at this point anyway, because at this point, seven and a half years until December 31st, 2026. So if you did something today and you sold your stocks and bonds and you had a $100,000 gain and you rolled it over to a fund, you would defer that tax until you either sold it or you got to December 31st, 2026. So that's kind of that component. And the nice thing about the Opportunity Zone uh, rollover is that if you hold that investment for five years, they give you a discount on that capital gains. They give you a 10% discount on the capital gains. And if you hold it for an additional two years for a total of seven years, they give you another 5%. So you're, you're, you're actually able to, to deduct your capital gains uh, by 15% if you hold it long enough as opposed to a, you know, 1031 and you would, just, you would just do a straight exchange and there's really no discount on that. So that's kind of a really a high level. There's, there's definitely some, a lot of advantages of doing a 1031, I'm sorry, doing a you know, opportunity zone 
So there's also some disadvantages. But what you could do is you could then, you know, if you're not worried about the other tax benefits of the opportunity zone, you, you could roll it over into an opportunity zone. And then from there, 1031, you know, 1031 out of it. So even though your taxes do, you could always sell it and then buy another, you know, do a 1031 and continue the show that way. Wow. That's huge. That's a big nugget right there. We usually go through and ask the one golden nugget you could just give. I think that would qualify as the golden nugget. Invest, take the capital gains from one asset and roll them into an opportunity zone. And then at the end of the opportunity zones, life 1031 exchange into another property like kind exchange, correct? Yep, correct. Wow. As long as you're as long as you're following those like kind of change. Now, now remember, you're, you're going to be in a fund, so it's either going to be two people if you've got two or three investors, um, which shouldn't be too hard. Now, if you have a syndication and you've got twenty or thirty investors in there, then they all have to agree to move over. And I actually did a video on that, as you know, how to ten thirty one out of a syndication because it's a little bit more complicated. Because again, it does have to be a like kind exchange. So you actually don't own the property, you own shares in a company or, or membership units in an LLC. So the entire LLC would have to sell a property and buy the new property to do a 1031. And the more people we have in the, in the LLC, the, the more challenging it is. But as I like to say, you, you just have to ask better questions. And so you don't ask, you don't say you can't do something. You ask, how can you do something? And that right. will open up your brain and, and start thinking of answers. And so there are ways to do it, creative ways to do it. And we talk about those in those videos. Right. Wow. wow. And so... You just hit on something and we're going to wrap up the show with this. You said it's not about saying you can't do it. It's about asking how you can. And so with that being said, we want to ask how you can. And we're, our best way to do that is to now, uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the newsletter, go to realliferalequity.com forward slash newsletter. We're going to talk about in that newsletter, a summation of everything Mauricio talked about today. Um, we're going to then include the information for his video series and any pertinent information that he wants to share with our audience today. Um, Mauricio, tell them how they can get a hold of uh, not only you, but also learn more about your company, um, how they can get involved with securities, uh, syndications, uh, all of the like. Yeah, so one easy way is go to my website, which is premierlawgroup.net. Got a lot of resources there. Um, you can always email me at team at premierlawgroup.net. That'll get you all the sort of the videos. And, uh, and I just started a YouTube channel not too long ago. So uh, we'd love for you to go check that out. You just Google or not Google, you go to YouTube and put in my name, Mauricio Roll, that'll pop up and, you know, like some of those videos. I mean, people are just starting to see those. So, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be adding more and more to those because my whole thing is, those of you who know me, is like, I like to add value and that's kind of how I, I do my business. And that's how I attract people is people like to do business with folks that, that educate. And that's probably got it from the real estate guys. I just like to lead with education. So ton of videos out there. Uh, find me on Facebook as well. I, I post a lot of those videos there as well. So those are all the options. Absolutely. That's amazing. So again, if you, if you didn't catch that YouTube, Mauricio Raul, spell your name for them so they can get a, yeah, M-A-U, yeah Mauricio is M-A-U-R-I-C-I-O and last name is Raul, R-A-U-L-D. Uh, or like I said, premierlawgroup.net would be the website that will also get you to all those different places. That might be a good place to start. All right. Premierlawgroup.net is the way to get it. Again, if you want to get those video series team at premierlawgroup.net, you can, he'll email them to you. Uh, I think that I'm going to be sending an email here in a minute uh, to get those videos. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of the videos that you've done. Phenomenal content. Uh, with that being said, we want to thank you so much for joining the show. You provided a wealth of information yes. uh, that we can take action on. There is a lot of people out there promoting information, but there's very few people who are 
promoting information you could take action on. And then from a professional standpoint, an attorney who is actually giving you the how-to behind what it is they're telling you to do. So exactly. with that being said, thank you so much for being on the show and for our audience, we'll see you next time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Real Life Real Equity Podcast. If you would like to ask the hosts a question or be exposed to our podcast audience, visit our website at realliferealequity.com and submit a request. Again, that's realliferealequity.com or send us an email at info at realliferealequity.com. Again, that's info at realliferealequity.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week right here on Real Life Real Equity Podcast.